Friends, as we prepare to go and hear once more from God's Word, and we turn our attention now to John's Gospel in chapter 20, let us pray together. Lord, we thank you on this wonderful day of celebration, a day of celebrating resurrection of Jesus Christ, a day that not only speaks of transformation for us as people, but also for all of creation. And as we gather now here to ponder and to hear your word. We pray, Lord, that you would plant deep inside our hearts that word, that we might live for you, that we might experience new life because of you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Scripture reading again is from John chapter 20, going to begin in verse 1 and reading through verse 18. Hear God's word. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Then Peter and the other disciples set out and went toward the tomb. The two were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent down to look in and saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen wrappings lying there, and the cloth that had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples returned to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had been lying, one at the head and the other at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, I do not know where they have laid him. When she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you looking for? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary, She turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not hold on to me, because I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. There's a scene in the acclaimed children's book, Last Stop on Market Street, when a blind man and his dog board the city bus. One of the book's central characters, a boy named CJ, gives up his seat to the man. And then he turns to his grandmother, who's affectionately referred to as Nana throughout the book, and asks this innocent question. How come that man can't see? A simple question, of course, and one that any one of us might be tempted to answer by describing 
what is different about the ocular mechanics of that man's eyes. That, of course, would be an answer that's drawing on knowledge. And as the expression goes, knowledge tells us that tomatoes are a fruit, and wisdom tells us not to put those tomatoes in a fruit salad. Nana is going to offer CJ something more in her answer than knowledge. She's going to offer this young boy wisdom. Nana said, boy, what do you know about seeing? Some people watch the world with their ears. The blind man himself expands on this as well by offering, that's a fact, their noses too. And he sniffs at the air and says, that's a mighty fine perfume you're wearing today, ma'am. This exchange on the city bus reminds us that there are more ways to see than just with our eyes. We can see with our ears and our noses. We certainly could add here the sense of touch. If you've ever walked around at night and stumbled through a room using your hands to try to see in that dark room, these senses help us to perceive reality and are immensely helpful for doing so. But here's the thing. The senses themselves are limited. And today's reading reminds us of those limitations. According to the early Christian writer who assembled this text, Three people witnessed something in the tomb that first Easter morning. And each would go on to become a prominent name in the history of the early church. Of course, one here is is unnamed, this unnamed disciple. We've, of course, heard of Peter, and that name is not unfamiliar to us. And if the unnamed disciple here is John, the namesake for the book itself that this text comes from, we've heard of him as well. Their names don some of our oldest church buildings today. Think about St. Peter's Basilica, for instance. And if you're a fan of the Netflix series, The Crown, you know that the first two episodes uh, depict the ailing health and subsequent death of King George VI. And before, in the real life of George VI, before lying in state in Westminster Hall, the late king's body was held for a few days in the same church that he had been baptized as a child a church where Princess Diana was also baptized when she was a child. The name of that church, St. Mary Magdalene Church. Like I said, prominent names. But when Mary Magdalene first arrives at the tomb that Easter morning, she is not yet referred to as the apostle to the apostles as she is known today and what later generations would know her by. She's rather a grieving disciple of a recently crucified rabbi. And what she sees at that moment is an open tomb and concludes that someone has taken Jesus' body and not knowing where he has been taken, she is troubled. Hearing the report from Mary, Peter and this unnamed disciple go to the tomb where they also see that the stone covering has been removed. And upon closer inspection, they also see linen wrappings lying in the tomb, those wrappings that would have once been wrapped around the body, and the headcloth itself rolled up and sitting in a place, again, by itself, not with a body. As we read further, and after Peter and the unnamed disciple have returned home, Mary will actually see, and she'll hear, because she has interactions with each, two angels that are seated where Jesus' body once lay, and then she'll actually have a conversation with Jesus himself, who she mistakes as the gardener. So an empty tomb, a moved stone, linen wrappings, and head coverings with no body. Angels 
And now Jesus himself. For each of us today who live in a world where it seems that we require 9 out of 10 dentists to legitimize our favorite toothpaste as the commercials go, it's rather surprising that when presented with the initial physical evidence of resurrection, that at initial first sight, two of three witnesses can't make the connection, that they cannot see that a resurrection has happened, that they don't believe. Only the other disciple is said to have seen and believed. As verse 9 will point out, this is due in part to the fact that these early witnesses, these early Christian disciples, were not expecting a resurrection. They didn't understand the scriptures in that way. And of course, we're surprised in all of, all of this, knowing that believing is the very aim of this gospel writer here in John, who writes this later on in verse 31. These are written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing you may have life in his name. The writer wants the readers here to believe something. The writer wants us as hearers to believe something. But how do you move from being a casual observer of these items, these linens and these empty tombs, how do you move from being that casual observer to being a full-on believer? Well, we see two ways in our text. The first one is this, is through the power of evidence of life or resurrection. For the unnamed disciple who in verse 8 observes the scene, that's enough for him to believe. And for some today, this is in fact enough. You hear the witness of Scripture, the testimony of history, or you see the faith taking shape in the life of another person, and that's enough evidence to support faith in your own life. It becomes undeniable for you. But there's a second kind of evidence that we see in our text. The evidence of what I call, instead of life, the evidence of love or relationship. For Mary, the evidence itself was not enough. Seeing those linens was not enough. Seeing the empty tomb, not enough. In fact, what she saw had another possibility altogether, that the body had been taken, that the grave possibly had been robbed. And so amidst her own tears, she isn't able to recognize the resurrected Jesus, even as he stands before her. So God provides her with a different kind of evidence, provides her with this evidence of love. Jesus calls her by name. And it triggers something familiar in her. The sound of a voice she's heard before, a voice that is significant and important in her life. I think our author wants us to remember this second piece of evidence just as much as the first piece. Of course, there's a real temptation in our lives that those lives themselves would collapse into the cold and callous expressions that we sometimes find ourselves living, where decision-making is based on a, maybe a lifetime of computations. If I do this, I expect this outcome. If I do that, then this is what is to come. In some ways, that type of thinking helps us to live lives that are more predictable, more manageable, The problem, of course, is that 
we have far less control of our lives than we ever let on. Our attempts to control and manage those lives not only form structures for our daily activities, they become the box in which we perceive all reality. They become the outline for who God and life must be. But Jesus wants something different for us. Jesus wants something better. Note the last part of verse 31, which I uh, read earlier. Through believing, you may have life in Jesus' name. Believing is not merely in affirming the truth of what has happened here in Easter alone, though that is extremely important. But it's also now enjoying a new kind of life that God is making available to us, that God's making available to you and to me. An unnamed disciple who is loved by Jesus. We see that in our text. Another whose tears are stilled when their name is called. These, of course, point to what that life looks like. A life that is now richly connected between people and their creator. A life of those who are beloved by God. In fact, Jesus' own Easter message The message we see here in this text that Jesus has for his disciples speaks of that connectedness in verse 17. I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. That's the language of connection, being connected. But perhaps in this season of pandemic and isolation, the season of fear, you find yourself now disconnected maybe a bit more disconnected from community, a bit disconnected from family, from God and faith, and you find yourself on the verge of or even actually weeping before your own vacated tomb, trying to make sense of the events that have brought you to this place, to this time in your life, and you wonder what the future will hold. Well, if Easter has any message for us, This is one part that it will hold. God is calling your name. That God in Jesus Christ is calling you to see what you couldn't and cannot see. Calling you to see new life amidst death. Calling you to new hope amidst fear. Calling you to be a participant in true resurrection. May that be so for us this year and forever.